Let's pray. Well, Father, we give thanks to you because this is the day that the Lord has made. And we have every reason to rejoice and be glad in it. Oh, Father, you have given us an opportunity once again to come and sit at your feet, to glory in Christ Jesus, to be filled with the knowledge of his glory, his excellencies, so that by the joy of knowing Christ, the power of sin would be broken in us. And so I pray, Father, that you would send your spirit to magnify Christ to fill us with the truth of your word and to change us for your glory and for our own joy. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn in your Bibles with me to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10. And we are working systematically through the book of Hebrews. We started chapter 10 last time. We won't finish it today, but I hope to get us through verse 18. Many of you know one of the most precious verses in the New Testament. It's not in the book of Hebrews, although there are many precious verses, truths in the New Testament. But one of the church's favorite, and I mean the church universal, is Romans 8.1, which says, Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation. Now that's a staggering promise. Though the wages of sin is death, for those who reject Jesus Christ, there is no hope. Because the wages of sin is death. And yet... There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. This is the truth we all know. This is the truth we all cling to, right? This is the hope of the gospel that on that final day when we stand before God and see the Lord Jesus face to face, that he will look at us and say all is forgiven. In fact, well done. Good and faithful servant, enter the joy of your master. We all know this truth, that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But I ask you, why is it true? Why is it true? Why was the sacrifice of Christ, of his own life, body, and blood on the cross, sufficient and superior over all sacrifices to save sinners, when the millions of animal sacrifices conducted under the Mosaic Law were insufficient to save even a single man. This is what the author of Hebrews is speaking about in chapter 10. Let's take a moment to read it together. Beginning with verse 1. For the law, since it has only a shadow of the good things to come and not the very form of things, can never by the same sacrifice which they offer continually year by year make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, they would have not ceased to be offered because the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have had consciousness of sin. 
But in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins year by year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Therefore, when he comes into the world, he says, Sacrifice and offering you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you have not taken pleasure. And then I said, Behold, I have come. In the scroll of the book it is written of me to do your will, O God. After saying the above, sacrifices and offerings and whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you have not desired, nor have you taken pleasure in them, which are offered according to the law. Then he said, Behold, I have come to do your will. He takes away the first in order to establish the second. By this, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Every priest stands ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifice, which can never take away sins. But he, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time onward till his enemies be made a footstool for his feet. For by one offering... He is perfected for all time those who are sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also testifies to us. For after saying, this is the covenant that I will make them, make with them after those days, says the Lord, I will put my law upon their heart and on their mind I will write them. Then he says, and their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. Now where there is forgiveness... Of these things, there is no longer any offering for sin. Now, the last time we discussed the fact that in these first four verses of chapter 10, the author is showing us one thing that is the impotence of the Old Testament sacrifices. The impotence of the Old Testament sacrifices. The Old Testament sacrifices could save no one. Though they were offered day after day, year after year, century after century. Why? Well, first, as we saw last time, because they were unable to secure access into the presence of God. The only person who could enter into the into the symbolic presence of God was the high priest once a year on the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. He would offer the sacrifice in the Holy of Holies. He would take the blood and sprinkle it on the Ark of the Covenant, the mercy seat, the throne of God as it symbolized. And looking at verse 1, if you set aside the parenthetical phrases, the verse simply says these words, The law can never make perfect those who draw near. The law can never make perfect those who draw near. You can try to draw near to God all you want. You can come up with your own neat system for drawing near to God. And that's the way it is in a postmodern world, right? Everybody's got their idea of who God is, and everybody's got their own method and means for approaching God and fellowshipping with him. But you can try all you want to do that with the true God, but you will never be granted access into his presence until you have been made perfect. But the law can't do that. 
the law can make no one perfect. And so the law was incapable of securing access into the presence of God. And second, we saw last week, the second reason the Old Testament sacrifices were impotent and insufficient to save was because they could not take away sin. In fact, this is the reason that under the law you could not have access to God. Why? Because the sacrifices could not take away sin. And that's what he says explicitly in verse 4. For it is what? Impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. This is why sinners can't gain access to God by those animal sacrifices. They could never take away sin. Now, this is important, beloved. This is important for us to see. We need to realize that no sacrifice we can offer has the power to purify us from sin. Do you understand that? There is, let me say it emphatically, there is no sacrifice that you or I can offer that is sufficient to take away sin. Or let me say it another way. How many things has God ordained for you to do in order for your sins to be taken away? Answer, zero. There is nothing that you can do, no sacrifice that you can make, no offering that you can present to God by which he will be satisfied and your sin be washed away. Your condition is hopeless. And so is mine. Our good works can't save us. Our personal sacrifices can't save us. Our humility can't save us. Not even, listen, not even our confession of sin can save us. You can confess your sins to God day after day, week after week, year after endless year, and still not be saved. You say, are you sure about that? I am positive about that. Listen, in Martin Luther's day, Martin Luther experienced this very thing. Every day he would spend hours in the confessional laying out his soul before a priest. He believed that God was angry with him and he longed to be reconciled. Let me amend that a little bit and say he knew, and all men know intuitively, that God was angry at him. And he longed to be reconciled to God. He was a monk, for goodness sake. He's supposed to be representing God to the people. And yet he knew God was angry at him. And there was nothing he could do. All of his efforts were futile. On one occasion, he said these words. If I could believe that God was not angry with me, I would stand on my head for joy. When he turned 28, he received his doctorate in theology and became a professor at the University of Wittenberg. And yet he was still lost. He said, though... I lived as a monk without reproach. I felt that I was a sinner before God with an extremely disturbed conscience. I could not believe that he was placated by my satisfactions. I did not love, yes, I hated the righteousness of God who punishes sinners. And secretly, if not blasphemously, certainly murmuring greatly, I was angry with God. And I said, as if indeed it is not enough that miserable sinners eternally lost through original sin are crushed by everyday kind of calamity by the law of the Ten Commandments without having God add pain to pain by the gospel 
and also by the gospel threatening us with righteous wrath. Love him? Sometimes I hate him. He confessed day after day every sin. These fellow monks thought he was gold-bricking hanging out in the confession booth instead of working in the field with everybody else. But his soul was tortured. And no amount of confession, no amount of penance, no amount of sacrifice, no amount of going to Mass could cure his guilty conscience. But then... While studying Romans chapter 1, verse 7, it's interesting when you read Martin Luther's life, and I don't intend for this to be a biography, but for several years, many years, as a monk, all he was allowed to study was the philosophers, Plato, Aristotle, etc., because that's really what that whole system is based on. And then the day came when he was entered into the Word of God. He was allowed to begin studying the Scriptures. And then from there he began teaching the Scriptures. And he agonized over Romans chapter 1, verse 17. And one day while he was agonizing over that, and I won't go into the story, but the Lord opened his eyes to see that it was not by works that men are declared righteous by God, but rather by the faith in the finished work of Christ. For the just shall live by faith. Luther writes this. When I came to understand this, I felt that I was altogether born again and had entered paradise itself through open gates. Here, totally, a totally other face of the entire Scripture showed itself to me. The Word of God broke open. And he understood it for the first time. The just shall live by faith. No sacrifice, no offering, no penance, no amount of confession had the power to save. Only the perfect sacrifice of Christ offered once for all is sufficient to save. Sinners are reconciled to holy God by the grace of the sufficient and superior sacrifice on the cross, which God applies to sinners to their account by simple faith. We live to proclaim the excellencies of Christ. Amen? And the chief of his excellencies, perhaps, is his excellent sacrifice, which brought salvation to all who would believe. In the next 14 verses in Hebrews 10, we find why Christ's sacrifice was sufficient to save and superior to any other sacrifices that could be offered. First, his sacrifice is superior. If you're taking notes, there will be, I think, nine. What are the chances, right? Come on, that's the closest thing to an amen I've heard all morning. Why is that? Why is Christ's sacrifice superior and sufficient? Number one, he is the heavenly sacrifice. Verse five. 
Therefore, when he comes into the world, he says, Sacrifice and offering you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. Once again, here we find the author building his case on Old Testament scripture. Do you notice in your Bible that that verse is printed in a little bit different type? That's an indication that he's drawing it from an Old Testament text. This is not new with him. He's appealing to scripture to build his case. The people may have thought, well, this is a new concept. And he's saying, it's not new. Let me show you in your scriptures. Let me show you in your Bible. Let me show you in the Old Testament, my beloved Jewish friends. This time he's quoting from Psalm 40. And here it's as if God the Son is standing, if you can imagine this. It reads as if God the Son went to the edge of heaven. He's standing as if ready to step off and come to the world where he will be born of a virgin, born a human baby. And as he stands there, he says something to the Father. What does he say? He says, the sacrifices that have been offered all these many years are not really what you've desired, but a body you have prepared for me. I know why I'm going. I know why I'm going. You see, Jesus' sacrifice was no afterthought, beloved. God the Father didn't resort to a contingency plan when it became apparent that the people were going to reject his son. Oh no, what are we going to do? This isn't working out right. He might, he might actually get killed. No, this had been a plan all along. Even from before the foundation of the world, and before he left the glory of heaven, he understood exactly what lay before him. His father had prepared a body for him so that he could be their perfect sacrifice. He would be the perfect high priest who would offer the perfect sacrifice. And Christ's offering was superior because he was the heavenly sacrifice, second It was sufficient and superior because he is the promised sacrifice. Verses 6 and 7. In whole burnt offerings, this is still the Son of God speaking, in whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come. In the scroll of the book it is written of me to do your will, O God. Notice he states it again. The Old Testament sacrifice could not propitiate God's wrath against sin. It could not satisfy God's just demands on the sinner's life. It could not subdue the holy anger of God towards sinners. The relationship in reality, there really was no relationship between a person's sin and the animal sacrifice. There was no real connection between the sinful heart of the man and the bloody death of a goat or a sheep or a dove or whatever it was. The relationship was really only symbolic. It was typical. It was a type. It was a parable. It was a signpost. It was a photograph. But it wasn't the real thing. 
And so it was impossible for the blood of an animal, an amoral animal, to bring about forgiveness for man's moral offenses against God. Only Jesus Christ, the perfect unity between deity and humanity, could take away sin. Satisfying God and purifying man. And so you see, there had to be a new covenant. This was not optional. There had to be a new covenant because there had to be a different way to resolve man's sin issue. Sin is the problem, right? Having problems in your marriage? Let me tell you what the problem is. It's sin. You say, well, that's pretty simplistic. Well, that's, that's just the way it is. It's sin. You show me where the problem is in your marriage, and I'll, I'll be able to identify it in Scripture. The problem is sin. You having problems with your children? I guarantee you there's sin there. I was saying to the elders, this is going to become a phrase of mine, I'm sure. Sin is an equal opportunity destroyer. And that's our business as a church, right? We address sin for our joy, for the joy of God's people. Why? Because that's why Jesus came. He came to put sin to death by dying himself. The problem is sin and the cure could never be an amoral animal sacrifice. It had to be a person who is truly man. And truly God. And there was only one. There was only one. There had to be a new covenant because there had to be a different way to resolve the issues of man's sin. It was God's will all along to do this. Not by human offerings and sacrifices, but by the blood of his own precious son. I have come to do your will, O God. Jesus knew all along that it was the Father's will for him to die. He knew it before he left heaven. He knew it before the world was created. You say, Pastor, explain that. Uh Uh-uh. I can't explain that. All I can do is glory in it. All I can do is say, Lord God, who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been your counselor? Or who has ever given to God that God should repay him? For from him and through him and to him are all things to him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. He says in the scroll of the book it was written of me. Where do you think that was? I read it for you this morning. It's not the only place, but it's the most significant place, perhaps in the Old Testament, most explicit. The prophet Isaiah, Isaiah 53. I would commend, I would commend you to memorize most, if not all, of that chapter. Someday you will need it, perhaps often. And you will be encouraged by seeing that God in his in the mystery of his sovereign grace had planned from the very beginning to make provision for your sin. 
Surely our griefs he himself bore, the prophet says, and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him. And by his scourging, by his scourging, we are healed. Why is Christ's sacrifice sufficient and superior? Because he is the heavenly sacrifice and he is the promised sacrifice. In the scroll of the book it was written. Third, he is the established sacrifice. Look at verses 8 and 9. After saying above, sacrifices and offerings and whole burnt offerings... And sacrifices for sins you have not desired, nor have you taken pleasure in them, which are offered according to the law. Then he said, Behold, I have come to do your will. Here's the explanation. He has taken away the first in order to establish the second. Here it is, beloved. God took away the old sacrificial system and replaced it with the new Once for all, sacrifice. He took away the entire system and replaced it with one sacrifice that occurred once in time, for all time. It is the established sacrifice. The author is saying, in effect, you cannot live in two covenants at the same time. God has taken away the old covenant and replaced it with the new. The old sacrifices are out because the new has come. And the new is not new. It's new in its arrival. But it is new. It is not new in its concept. It is not new because it has been promised. And even all the way back in the book of Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, the euangelion, the first gospel, where God told Adam and Eve, speaking to Eve directly, someday a son of yours will come and he will crush the serpent's head and the serpent will strike him on the heel. There will be a battle. There will be pain. There will be suffering. But someday your son will come and he will win. This is, this is in no wise meant to indicate that the old covenant was a mistake or that it had not accomplished its purpose. Indeed, it had achieved exactly what God intended it to achieve. Paul said in Romans 7, Through the commandment, sin would become utterly sinful. For I would not have known coveting if not the law, if the law had not said, do not covet. And then the law come becomes complicitous with my sin, encouraging me to do the very thing the law forbids. I remember as a child going to the Jersey Shore. I grew up in New Jersey and we'd go to the beach with the family. We'd rent a house off and down there and there was a big state park off the end of up the edge of one of the rivers leading to the ocean in New Jersey. And, and we'd go through, and it was this, you'd, you'd 
pass through the toll booth. You know, I mean, you can't do any, you can't go to the grocery store in New Jersey without paying the toll booth. But we'd pass through the toll booth to get into the park, and then it was a couple of miles of driving down this two-lane road with sand dunes on either side that they had built up for, you know, to protect the the city from the storms. And periodically, about every quarter mile, every half a mile, you'd see a sign, and it said, "Do not walk on the dunes." And what was really interesting about those signs is, as you're driving down the road, there weren't any footprints anywhere on the dunes except in one place. Up around those signs and back down. Why? There's something about do not that makes you want to do. Don't touch that. Ooh, touch what? <laughs> that paint's wet. Where? Is it? Is it? You mean this paint? What is it? But don't eat that. That's not for supper. That's for family coming over. Don't touch that. It's the way it is. What was the point of the law? The point of the law was simple. Show mankind if he's ever going to come to the end of himself and know that he needs a Savior, he has to see his sin. Through the law, the commandment, Through the commandment, sin was made to become utterly sinful. That is, by giving man the law and the sacrifices, it helped him perceive in his heart and with his senses how vile and devastating sin is in the eyes of God. In fact, Hebrews 10.3 says it again. Just look up the page a little bit. In those sacrifices, there is a what? Reminder of sins year by year. And that's all it was. Yes, it was a type. It was a a symbol for what was to come. A perfect sacrifice was to come. But its practical effect was supposed to be this. When you see the sacrifice, know in your heart, I should have died today. I should have died. For the wages of sin is death. But now that God's purpose for the Old Testament system has ended, the old sacrifices, all our hope, all of our faith should be cast upon the new sufficient and superior sacrifice which was made in the person and body of Christ. He is the established sacrifice. Number four, he is the sanctifying sacrifice. Look at verse 10. By this will, that's the will of God, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ. How many times? Once for all. Once for all. The old system of sacrifices had no way to actually make a person holy, it was merely a symbol. All it could do, day after day, year after year, week after week, millennia after millennia, all it could do is say, you're sinful, you're sinful, you're sinful. You need a Savior. You need a Savior. You deserve to die. It had no power to make us new. It had no power to change us. Beloved sinners don't need to be moralized. They need to be raised from the dead. The perfect example 
the most beautiful, the most perfect example of saving grace is the story of Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. This is how, this is how salvation happens. Lazarus, come forth! And he obeyed. He obeyed. Paul said, the God who let, made light shine out of darkness has shed abroad in our hearts that we might see the glory of God where? In the face of Christ. It is God's creative work. Sinners don't need to be moralized. You can't get moralized into the kingdom. You can't work your way into the kingdom. You can't do good things and have God be pleased so that he will let you into the kingdom. We need to be born again. Salvation requires a miracle upon the heart. It's not just information. It's not just mental assent. We need that. That's part of it. I need to hear it. I need to say I understand that. But if that's all you've got, salvation is a miracle. God must do that in your heart. And salvation requires a miraculous heart transplant, as it were, that no amount of animal sacrifices can induce the Holy Spirit to perform. It is exactly as Ezekiel described it. It is like taking out the heart of stone and replacing it with a heart of flesh. That is not something that you can do by figuring out the gospel. That's something the Holy Spirit must do. But when Christ offered the sufficient and superior sacrifice on the cross that day, God released his Holy Spirit to move in power to sanctify people who were formerly unholy in his sight. And now our sins can not only be covered, now they can be forgiven. And not only forgiven, But it says, verse 10, by this we have been sanctified. We've been changed. God has done something to us so that we are new creatures in Christ. The old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. The word sanctify here means to set apart or to make holy, sanctus. In the Latin, it's where we get our word saint, anyone who is a child of God, a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, saved by grace through faith, is a saint. Why? Because he has been sanctified. And this is God's requirement for entrance into into his presence, that you be made holy, that you be declared holy first, that you be made holy. And the Old Testament sacrifices could never do this. Jesus said in Matthew 5, 48, you know what, you know what, do you know what it takes to get into the kingdom? 5:48. therefore you must be perfect even as your heavenly Father is perfect. You've got to be as good as God to get into heaven. You've got to be as holy as he is holy. You've got to be as moral as he is moral. You've got to have a heart that's as pure as his heart. Or you're going to corrupt that place and he won't let it. You have to be perfect. How perfect? Even as your heavenly Father is perfect. 
If you have sinned in this life, and all have sinned, no amount of moral behavior, religious duty, sacrifice, and offering can make that go away, can make your conscience clean. The sinner must be made holy. He must be sanctified. And that is why Jesus died. By this, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Jesus' death was the sufficient and superior sacrifice because he is the heavenly sacrifice. He is the promised sacrifice. He is the established sacrifice. And he is the sanctifying sacrifice. But there's more. He is also the eternal sacrifice. Look at verses 11 and 12. This is great. Every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But he, having offered one sacrifices for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God. Beloved, millions and millions of people around the world this very day will attend services wherein a human priest pretends to offer Christ's body as a sacrifice. The author of, by the inspiration of the Spirit, the author of this scripture, by its authority, we can say with confidence that God does not accept such worship. Why? Because they treat Jesus' death on the cross as insufficient to save sinners. It wasn't enough. It wasn't enough when he died on the cross. He has to die every day, every day, every day. We have to do this every day, every day until he comes. And then after that, it's purgatory. They say his body has to be offered every day, just as the animal sacrifices were made in Israel every day. But here the inspired author dispels such human imagination. He says the Old Testament priest offered sacrifices every day. But Christ, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God. It is what? finished. It's done. Jesus doesn't have to work anymore in terms of making sacrifice. His sacrifice was superior and sufficient for the salvation of all who would believe. The day Jesus made his sacrifice was the day God ended the need for any more sacrifices. The ransom had been paid. Redemption had been purchased. The debt was canceled. He was one sacrifice for all time. It is sufficient and it is superior superior because it is eternal. It is eternal in the sense that His death on the cross, His sacrifice, sufficiently applied retroactively to all who trusted God in the typical sacrifices or the pictorial sacrifices or the symbolic sacrifices 
that they offered in faith, in obedience to the law, saying day after day, God, I trust you with this. I don't understand it at all. I don't understand it all. But I trust you. God, be merciful to me, the sinner. Answer this. Did that man, that publican, the tax collector, did he say that before the cross or after? Before. Before. That's exactly what the law was supposed to bring out of us. God, be merciful to me, the sinner. All I can do is plead for mercy. God, be propitiated. May your wrath be subdued on my account because of the sacrifice that has been made. And while that sacrifice of an animal in itself was insufficient, God knows the heart. Listen, folks, sin and righteousness are always matters of what? The heart. And God took that sacrifice, the blood that was spilt from the cross, the life that was taken of the perfect Son of God, and He applied it to the account, to the record of all who have believed, all the way back to Adam. And then He applies it forward to all who believe after the cross. It is the one superior and sufficient sacrifice. It is an eternal sacrifice. Number six, Jesus is the victorious sacrifice. Look at verse 13. Waiting, here's Jesus sitting at the right hand of God, right? Verse 13, waiting from that time onward until his enemies be made a footstool for his feet. Now that Jesus has finished his work and sat down at the right hand of God, what's he doing? Simply this. He's waiting for the day that God has ordained when he will make his enemies a footstool for his feet. Not only did the Old Testament not have any real effect on the sinners who offered them, they had no effect on Satan either. But when Christ died on the cross, he disarmed, Paul says in Colossians 2.15, he disarmed and triumphed over the devil and his angels, making a public spectacle of them. The power of the enemy has been broken in the believer's life. He now has the capacity to say no to sin. And oh, how many brothers and sisters in Christ need to claim that truth. You are not a victim of sin. When you sin, you sin because you've given way to your flesh. You're doing what your sinful heart desires. But if you are a child of God, you have the capacity to deny sin. You have the capacity to resist the devil and he will flee from you. Promise of God. You now have the Holy Spirit. You can now walk in the Spirit and not be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin, Hebrews 3.13. Because Jesus died, beloved, you can break that stubborn, godless habit in your life. You can overcome that temptation that plagues you and your family. And perhaps it's something that nobody else even knows. How can I ever have the power to break this stubborn, wicked, vile, immoral habit? You already have the power because Jesus died. 
Christ's sacrifice was a victorious sacrifice because he offered his own body on the cross. One day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess what? Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. Or as the author of Hebrews already revealed in chapter 1, God has said to his son from Psalm 110, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Quoting out of the Psalms. And the author of Hebrews is saying, listen, to which of his angels? Don't say Jesus is an angel. He's not an angel. To which of his angels did he say, today you are my son, I've begotten you. Sit on my throne until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Only to the Son of God himself. Jesus is the fulfillment of this prophecy. And isn't it wonderful to know that because of Christ's sacrifice, nothing can separate us from the love of Christ? Nothing can separate us from the love of God. For I am persuaded, Paul said, that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor powers, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Why? Because Jesus is the victorious sacrifice. Nothing could ever even be imagined like that for the old animal sacrifices. They were victorious over nothing. All they could do was point forward to the coming Christ and convict men of sin. And they couldn't save. Number seven, Jesus' sacrifice is superior and sufficient because it is the perfecting sacrifice. Look at verse 14. For by one offering, he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. Beloved, here is your eternal security. This is it. This is not the only place in Scripture, but you need to cling to this. Those who are children of God, by faith, have been sanctified, verse 10, by Christ's superior sacrifice. And it was by that same offering that those who are sanctified have been perfected for how long? For all time. We have been made perfect, perfected for all time. Here, beloved, is one of the several reasons why Hebrews 6 cannot be saying that a believer can lose his salvation. You cannot. Those whom Christ has sanctified are perfected for all time. Our sins are removed forever. Our guilt is dissolved forever. Our standing before God is secure for how long? Forever. The issue he was dealing with back then is maybe you never were a believer. Maybe you've been a curiosity seeker. Maybe you wanted your ears tickled. Maybe... You as a Jew saw the connection between the Old Testament and this new message and you thought, well, that's something neat to check into. And you became a part of the church. And now that you're being called upon to sacrifice for his name, now that there's a little persecution going on, you're thinking maybe that wasn't a great idea after all. Maybe Christ isn't worthy of such sacrifice. Maybe it was better to do what I was doing before and you're abandoning the faith. And the author is saying, then maybe you weren't a child of God ever. But be warned. If you turn your back on this Christ, there is no other way. You will be lost 
forever. But for those who place their hope in Christ, by one offering, He has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. This is the reason Paul could say, Romans 8, 1, Therefore, there is no condemnation. Jesus said you must be perfect, and then he died in our place to make us perfect. He made himself the perfecting sacrifice. And number eight, he's not only the perfecting sacrifice, but he is the forgiving sacrifice. Look at verses 15 through 17. And the Holy Spirit also testifies to us, for after saying, note, quote from the Old Testament, Jeremiah, This is the covenant that I will bring to them. After those days, says the Lord, I will put my law upon their heart. As opposed to what? As opposed to them being on tablets of stone. I will put them on their heart. And on their mind, I will write them. And then he says, And their sins and all their lawless deeds, I will remember no more. I will remember them no more. Once again, the author is appealing from the Old Testament to demonstrate that all of this is in perfect keeping with what God had already promised through his word. In this case, it was the prophet Jeremiah who announced that someday God would establish a new covenant through which the sins of his people would no longer just be covered. They would be forgiven. And this promise is fulfilled, the author is saying, in the sacrifice of Christ. Do you suffer under the guilt of sins and lawless deeds? No religious ritual can resolve that. No amount of penance can erase that. What you need is for God's forgiveness. The glory of the gospel is this. The promise Christ has come. The high priest, after the order not of Aaron but of Melchizedek, as God promised in Psalm 110, has come. He told you again and again and again he was going to send this one. He even told you what he would do, Isaiah 53, that he would come and die on your behalf. He has come. And all of your hope now is secure in him. Trust him. Don't turn back to the old system. The old system is no more. Christ is all. Christ is all. And he is the end of the law to those who believe. He is the fulfillment of the law's requirements and penalties for all who believe. And the promise is fulfilled. There is forgiveness in Christ. Our excellent Christ is the forgiving sacrifice. And number nine, he is the exclusive sacrifice. Verse 18. Now, here's his conclusion. Where there is forgiveness of of these things, there is no longer any offering for sin. What's he mean? God doesn't accept any offering. He's saying, not even my confession, if you're an unbeliever, nope, doesn't do anything doesn't do a thing. If your hope is in your confession, if that's what you're leaning on for your salvation, your hope is in vain. 
He said, what about all the good things I do? I really try to be a good person. I attend church. I give money. I read the Bible to my kids. I try to do the right thing on the job. I try not to cuss too much or sin very much or smoke too much or whatever. Surely the Lord knows I'm battling and he's pleased by that. Not if your reliance for the forgiveness of your sins is on any of that. There's only one sacrifice that he accepts. And it is the one that he himself made when he sacrificed himself. And that's where all of our hope must be. When Martin Luther looked at this text in Romans 17 and saw the just, or 117, the just shall live by faith. Faith in what? You hear people all the time say, I just believe. What do you, you, what do you believe in? I just believe. You believe in belief? I mean, that's, that's chasing your tail. I just trust that everything's going to work out. What are you placing your trust in? What is the object of your faith? Well, I confess my sins. So the object of your faith is you? The object of your faith must be this. That God in Christ left heaven, came to earth, lived a perfect life, 33 years, was brutally murdered by the horrific and gracious plan of God in my place, without which I have no hope. God made him who knew no sin to be sin for me, so that I might become the righteousness of God in Him. It's all about Christ. It's all about Christ. You say, well, where does confession fit in then? Confession fits in for the believer who wants to walk hand in hand closely with the Lord Jesus, living each day, keeping in step with the Spirit of God. We keep current. We don't want anything, any of that old stuff that we've been forgiven of, By the blood and righteousness of Jesus Christ, we don't want any of that creeping back into our lives. Why? Because we make it our ambition, whether at home, here on earth, or absent with the Lord, to be what? Pleasing to the Lord. We don't want anything to interrupt that fellowship. We don't want anything to interrupt our prayers. If we don't treat our wives right, men, you know what Peter promises? God will not hear your prayers. Forget about praying. You say, well, I pray. It's a really wonderful experience. Doesn't matter. On God's side, not even hearing it. It's not even hearing it. Why? Because he hates sin. And he's made provision for sin. The question is, are we living in that provision? Are we living in it? Therefore, there is no condemnation for those who sacrifice. For those who go to church, for those who are in Christ Jesus. And this is why in verse 3 of that same chapter, chapter 8, Paul explains, For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did. See that? I mean, this whole message is summed up in that one 
sentence. For what the law could not do, Romans 8, 3, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and as an offering for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. You know why God does not condemn believing sinners? You know why there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus? It has nothing to do with what they have done or not done. It has everything to do with the sacrifice that has been made on their account. And here is our excellent Christ. He is the heavenly sacrifice. He is the promised sacrifice. He is the established sacrifice. He's the sanctifying sacrifice. He's the eternal sacrifice. He's the victorious sacrifice. He's the perfecting sacrifice. He is the forgiving sacrifice. And he is the exclusive sacrifice. God will accept no other. No other. Is the Lord Jesus your sufficient, superior sacrifice? Beloved, religious activity can never earn forgiveness of sins, but there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Amen? And oh, Father, how we will worship and praise your name for this, for eternity. We will sing for eternity of your Mercy, oh Father, all of my sin, all of my wickedness, you have forgiven because you have made provision for such in the blood of your own Son. Oh Father, I am unworthy. The Lord Jesus is worthy of all my praise and adoration. And how we, as your forgiven people, long to be with you, to see you face to face. Even as my brother-in-law this week, just yesterday, met his Savior. How we long to see the one who has sacrificed himself for us. Oh, Father, while we wait for that day, may we be found faithful to these truths. And by our lives, may the Lord Jesus in all of his excellencies be magnified in us to the praise of his glorious grace. For we pray it in the name of our Savior, Jesus. Amen.